Hey, if you picked up a Bible in the back, um, it'll be page 603. We're turning to Luke 15 this morning. Luke 15. If you've ever made visits to historical sites, if you've ever been to uh, a museum, if you've ever even watched a athletic competition on television, you recognize in each one of those places, there may be a guide or a commentator. Their job is to set some context and get out of the way. Their job, the guide's job, the museum curator's job, the commentator, the analyst in sports, their job's never to be the story. I, I, I mentioned that. I, I think their role, the best, will set set something in context and highlight things that you don't want to miss. And, but ultimately, they're not there to do anything but tell the main story. Let the attraction drive the experience so that when they do their job well, you think differently and you feel differently and your values are shaped differently. Why do I say all that? Because we are going to look at a like one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. It's probably one of the portions of scripture we're going to look at is probably one of the most familiar parables that Jesus told. We've come to know it as the prodigal son. What I, what I have no desire to do is that the messenger be the center of attention here. What I'd like to do is let this amazing story, it's actually three stories that Jesus tells in this chapter, be front and center and you have an encounter with that that would shape your thinking. It would shape your feeling. It would shape your values, what really matters to you. So I'd like to play in some ways the, of course I'm a pastor and of course I'm a preacher, of course I'm teaching today, but I'd like to play the role of a guide to say, look at this. Look at this story. And my, my, my concern, if I'm laying it out there, my concern is that you've heard these stories that we're going to share so many times. Yeah, 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 yeah I, I know that. And you'll miss something promise you, you'll miss something. I wish we could just kind of undo all that we've heard and hear this for the very first time, but maybe we can make that effort, okay? So Luke chapter 15, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners? And eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp And sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. 
Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And so he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. But now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. So the father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I must celebrate, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This story speaks for itself. It even speaks with a greater degree of volume when you know the context. We've been reading Luke, been tracking with Luke. Jesus is ministering, he's teaching. 
In Luke 14, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. He had extended an invitation to this banquet. It's kind of like anybody can follow him. The, the invitation's wide. And, and this ruffles some feathers because as Jesus is ministering and extending invitations like this, it's kind of pushed him into conflict with religious leaders of the time who think, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing that. Jesus seems to be attracting the, the spiritual misfits, if you will, like the outcasts that really shouldn't be having any part around uh, a holy figure like Jesus. But Jesus seems to be attracting these outcasts, and there are they're those that don't like that. So they're in conflict. And Jesus is walking closer and closer. The book of Luke, like from now on, presents us like we're headed to Jerusalem. And we know what happens in Jerusalem, but they didn't know what was happening in Jerusalem. So there's this escalating conflict, and Jesus is saying, like, there's a banquet, and everybody's invited, even those that were outcasts, or you're now invited. And lest we think it's just easy to follow, Jesus, he in the end of Luke 14, we looked at this last week, said the cost is high. You have to renounce everything. You have to give up everything to be my disciple. It's a huge cost. In the midst of that, he still has people following him. Yeah, these stories, so there are three of them, right? They're not that hard to understand. They cross cultures. We understand these. There's a hundred sheep, one gets lost, and the shepherd pursues, brings back the sheep, and there's a reaction of joy. Jesus tells another story. Woman had 10 coins. She loses one, searches diligently, finds it, calls the neighbors in. There's a reaction of joy. The last story is longer and it, and it pushes at our heart more. Because here there are two sons. One gets lost. Same motif there. So he gets lost. And then comes to his senses and returns to the father. And there's a reaction. There's a reaction of joy, but there's another reaction. Jesus is telling these kinds of stories with sinners present. And with the Pharisees present as well. Again, so that you can appreciate this story, I just want to hit some highlights today. I think one of the highlights of this story, I, I, I won't break any new ground if you've heard messages on, on this passage, but one of the highlights that always gets me is how the father is filled with joy and love. I hope you don't miss that in the story. The father is filled with joy and love. There are emotional words in this passage. So it starts off with Pharisees grumbling and complaining. Like they're ticked off at what Jesus is doing. How different God is pictured than them. So, in the story of the sheep and coin, if you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible, which is a great habit, or highlighting something, or if you look at verse 5, you'll find the word joy or rejoice. In verse 6, you'll find the same word. Verse 7, you'll find the same word. Verse 9, you'll find the same word. Verse 10, you'll find the same word. Don't miss that. And all of those are talking about what happens when something that's lost has been found. It's a picture of what happens in the Father's presence. There is joy. The Father's presence is where there is joy eternal, pleasures everlasting. Wherever God goes, there is joy. This is who he is. The Father is filled with great joy and rejoicing. As you continue to read, you see like a a party atmosphere in the the last part. I mean, the Father's throwing a party because he's a, a God. It represents a God who is filled with joy. 
filled with joy, but also filled with love. I, I see the picture of, especially in the last parable, the parable of the prodigal son, the story that Jesus told this father in verse 20, just stuck out to me this week as I was reading it and rereading it, as the father felt compassion on his son. When he saw him a long way off, he felt compassion. He felt something. Something drawn to him. This is, this is a picture of God. This is trying to help us understand God more. That God is a God of love. The father celebrates his son coming home and that's said in verse 22. This is fitting. This is a totally appropriate response. When sinners come home, God's happy. God's joyful. This is a father who loves his son so much that he goes out to meet his son, the wayward son that's returning. But, but in verse 28, he goes out to see his, the, the older brother. He goes out to see his oldest son because his son won't come in. This is a father that moves toward people. This is a God who moves toward people in, in love and in joy. I wonder when you think of God, I know this is just a thought experiment, but I think it's a, I think it's a helpful one actually. When you think of God, what is his facial expression like? And I, I, I don't mean to get sentimental about God or, or take us to some odd place, but, but I think it's important when you picture God, is his, the, the expression on his face toward you, is it, is it a cold one? Is it one where it's kind of the disapproving, eye-rolling, I can't believe you did it again kind of look? When, when you imagine his face, is it like flashes of, of red-hot anger? Is he, is he brooding? Is he disappointed? Is he upset? Is it a low-boil resentment toward you? And the mess you've made or the mess you did make or the mess others... What, what, is, what is the picture? Is it kindness? Is it joy? Is it love? I mention this only in hopes that you correct whatever image, if it's a wrong image of God, that this gets corrected today. That from now on, when you're tempted to think of this God who is just kind of standing over there, just shaking his head, can't believe it again, I hope you see a different picture. As you come back home, I hope you see the father, the smile on his face. I hope you see him with arms open, ready to welcome. I hope that image is just embedded on your heart. I love this picture of the father filled with joy and love. This story, if I'm looking for the highlights of the story, another highlight is what it means when Jesus welcomes sinners. And if I, if I understand the parable, all three of them right, what it means when God welcomes sinners is that he goes and looks for them. That's what it means. So I mean, that, that's where it begins, right? So they, the Pharisees, they lay a charge at Jesus. You know, so they, they bring an accusation against him. This man receives sinners. He welcomes sinners. And he even goes so far as to eat with them. And Jesus would have to say, guilty is charged. If that's the charge, I'm guilty. But what does it mean that he welcomes sinners? I think it's not just that he says, you know, here's where I am. 
You got my number if you want to call it. That's not the picture here. The picture is of a shepherd not just saying, you know what, the sheep knows where I am. It's a, it's a, a shepherd that's moving. It's, a, it's a, a woman who's seeking diligently to find this, this coin of value to her. It's the, the father who's looking out ready to, to welcome the son back. It, it's, it's the God who moves. And so welcoming sinners means that he moves towards us. That's exactly his mission. Luke 19.10 would say, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. So whatever, whatever our experience of grace, and we all have different experiences, all those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way, you've experienced grace in, in, a, in a unique way. In some ways, it's common to everybody else. In some ways, God did a special work in your heart that's unique to you. Whatever that experience was, you might articulate it as, you know, I remember when I found the Lord. I just know before you found the Lord, he was looking for you. He wasn't saying, you come find me whenever you're you're ready. He was pursuing you. He was actively going after you. That's the love of the Father. That's what it means when it says, Jesus, welcome sinners. Everyone in heaven will be someone who has been found by God. Every one of us. Found by God. Because he came looking. And whether you were five or whether you were 25 or whether you were 65, he came looking. As I read this story, there's another highlight, and it actually comes up in verse 7 and verse 10. It's a a particular word, and it's the word repent. So the way Jesus tells the story is like, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then it's like, well, we need to know what that word means. What does it mean to repent? Because if I fill that in with my own definition, I might fill it in with, well, to repent means like you really, really feel bad about something. You really, really feel ashamed of something. You really feel guilt. I'd say, I I certainly think if you've done something wrong, there are worse things than that. But I don't know that that totally encapsulates repentance as described in scripture. Or, Or maybe we think repentance is like, you know what, I'm... I feel ashamed of myself and I'm going to make a determination to be a better version of myself. So I don't like that version of myself. I'm going to make a determination to be a better me. So right now I'm I'm making that determination and see that's repenting. Well, if if you want to do things differently, uh, that's to be applauded. If it's better and there's progress in life, that's to be applauded. I I don't know that that's exactly how Jesus is marking out repentance here. Or, or maybe as you, you think of repentance, you, you kind of have it in your mind as, yeah, repentance means you stop doing bad stuff, or at least most of the bad stuff, and you start doing like really good stuff, or at least mostly good stuff. And that's kind of a, a flip, and that's, that's kind of repentance. And I'd say, well, certainly, I'm all for stopping uh, our, our pursuit of bad things, and I'm all for doing good things. That still, though, misses a critical dimension of repentance in this. When Jesus talks about that one sinner who repents. Repentance in that case, and in every case in, in this passage in Luke, is relational. It's not, it's not about a moral code. It's relational. It's about a person. Repentance is about a person. Specifically, it's about following Jesus. It's not about our efforts. It's not about our, our promises of future obedience. It's about turning to a person. We can't atone for our own sins. That is Jesus' work. 
So we turn to him. We, we can't clean up our act on our own. That is the work of Jesus to make us clean. We turn to him. It's, it's just so interesting in the story. So, so in the story of the, the prodigal son who ran away from home, his, it says when he came to his senses, I think that's a good description of, of repentance, when he came to himself, when he came to his sen- senses. What was his first thought? His first thought was not, I need to quit doing all that bad stuff. His first thought wasn't, I need to be a better version of myself. His first thought was, I have a father and I need to get back to him. I need to go to him. I will arise and I will go to my father. And he prepares this speech to try to, to, try to build back the relationship. Because repentance, first and foremost, is not about our promises, not about doing better, but it's about turning to a person, and that person has a name. It's Jesus Christ, turning to him, following him. Do you see repentance in that way, or do you mainly think about, I need to alter my lifestyle? I want you to see when Jesus says, there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. It's not about one sinner that said, I'm going to try harder next time. It's about one sinner that says, I can't do life on my own. I'm turning to Jesus. I'm following him. I'm not trusting in myself. Do you see that in this story? I think all those are highlights, but each one of those helps shape the picture, but we could easily miss the main emphasis of the parable if we're not careful. Because like this whole thing started with, like this problem, this conflict that Jesus was having because there were these religious leaders who were watching sinners. You fill in the blank of what that is, but they had in their mind, that's a sinner, and they were watching those sinners be accepted, and they were going, they should not be accepted. They should be told to stay outside. They should be told, not around here. We're, we're holy people here. We follow God here. And so they get so angry that they're frustrated with Jesus. And that is what Jesus addresses. And for that, we begin to see even more into this story of the prodigal son which actually is not just a story about one son, but it's a story about two sons. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller helpfully says, what's amazing about this story is there are two ways to be distant from the father, not just one. There are two ways in these two sons to be distant from the father. A man had two sons. Well, the first way is easy. I mean, it's right there on the surface, right? So you tell God, I'll do it my own way. If I need you, I'll call you, but I'm going to do it my own way right now. So I don't know. I don't know how many people in Newark are pursuing that. How many people at University of Delaware, how many people at your school, how many people in your neighborhood are saying, God, I really don't need you. I'll do it my way. It breaks the relationship, puts distance between you and God. It's living as if God's dead to you. That's certainly what when inheritance stuff starts coming up, it's like, when you die, I want that, actually give it to me now. And you're as good as dead to me. That's what the younger son is saying. There's distance between him and the father. Not hard to see that. Not hard to see where that leads you to. I'm in the brokenness of this man. Not hard to imagine this situation. I guess most every family has this sort of situation where someone made, you know, kind of jackknifed their life and decided to go down a path that would just cause major destruction for a mom, for a dad, for a brother, for a sister. 
in our family, that was Uncle Ricky, who lived most of his adult life in jail. Occasionally he was out only to go back in. Drug addictions, everything else. Stole from his mom, stole from his grandmother. I mean, we, we, we have categories for this kind of story. We understand how one person can just blow up a family like this. As they pursue a path away from God, distant from the Father. And in the end, what's amazing is God still shows mercy here. And the son ends with a restored relationship. But then, it's like then the camera switches to the other son. So this son gets reconciled to the father, the one that had run run away, but the other son, the other son surprises us. Because here we have this hard-working, faithful son who ends up being the villain of the story. So Tim Keller said it well. Like Jesus told parables not to warm hearts, but to shatter categories. This isn't just meant to be a heartwarming story. It's meant to, to, to mess with our categories. So here's the hardworking, faithful son. And that is the one who, at the end of the story, ends up distant from the father. That's the one who, who is angry with the father and putting distance between him. What causes that? I mean, what causes someone to be pretty moral, pretty upstanding, but find themselves estranged from God? I wonder if we could see that slow, steady erosion that goes from maybe a relationship where dad and son were close and now it's distant, or where heavenly father and, and, and son are, are close, but now it grows distant. What, what happens? What happens there? And I think for us, we need to examine this. Because my guess is, the longer you live as a Christian, I know this is true with myself, the longer I live as a Christian, the more I am exposed to the temptation of being an older brother. Time goes by. Time goes by and I'm more inclined to, to follow in the path of this older brother. So, so what's happened in there? I, I wonder if you noticed as the older brother was talking I wonder if you saw the pride in his heart. Pride will always create distance between us and God because God resists the proud. Did you hear the, did you hear the older brother say, you know, I've served you these many years and I've never disobeyed you. I, so he's saying he's perfect. And you know, this is, the, this is the currency that pride always trades in and that is comparison. Well, I'm better than him, better than her. At least I didn't do that. At least I've always done this. If you kind of measure me up. And that pride begins to build. I wonder if Jesus was even kind of do it, addressing in a backdoor way when he says, you know, there's more joy in, in having over one sinner that re- repents. And I wonder if he looked over to the Pharisees and said, then over... 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent over anything because they never do anything wrong. We find ourselves like taking steps away from the Father in our pride. I don't think pride happens overnight. It's a slow boil. We, we, we pretend like, well, I just, you know, it doesn't affect my relationship with God, but surely it does because we miss the greatness of God. We, we begin to be very important in our own lives. We're the center of our own universe and we seem big and so God doesn't seem that big to us. I wonder today, I think it's just worth asking repeatedly, where is your pride being fed? What is, what is feeding you to 
feel like you're pretty much better than most, most people, at least this class, this class, this category, that category. We have to slay our pride by asking, who am I? What do I have that I didn't receive? It's all been a gift. By asking questions like, well, how great is our God? starts with pride, but that pride is also mixed in, like, mix in a little bit of resentment and anger. You hear resentment in his voice, don't you? When he says, in verse 29, he addresses his father in, and it doesn't quite bring it out, but in the original, he says, look, it's almost like, hey, and like, no, no son should address their father that way, not in that culture, not in ours, but he does, so he feels like he's resentful enough to go, hey, this is, this is what's really happened, Dad. He even says in verse 30, like, there's this son of yours. He doesn't even want to refer to him as his brother. So there you see this resentment coming up. And I wonder, I wonder if you share this resentment. So I deserve X, but I'm getting Y. And he certainly doesn't deserve that. And, and, and she's getting this. Are you living with that sort of resentment and anger? Are there slights that have been done to you over time that are hard to let go that you seem to, just seems like immediately, that comes to your mind pretty quickly. It's just interesting, this happens to deal in the area of money. I find, I find this is often the case, inheritance and money, some, sometimes times don't change. I deserve that. I was with mom here and I should get that. And I can't believe she's going to, I can't believe he's going to. I wonder if in your heart, you've kept a steady record of wrongs done against you. And maybe now you're 30, you're 40, you're 60, and that record's accumulated. You remember every time, every time you found yourself getting dealt the crummy hand, every time you were the target, every time you were neglected, every time, and and the trail like forms and then begins to widen in your heart, and every time where, where... you didn't, you didn't, it, was, it wasn't done quite right by you. And you begin to remember these things. And sometimes they're small and sometimes they're big. We say, well, it's just kind of operating in my own heart. No, eventually that resentment translates into our relationship with God. Because we say, God, I don't know how you can be so good and let me deal with all this mess. It's not right. It's not right. We need to kill the sin in our heart. Where do we need to forgive? Where do we need to move on? Where do we need to have a conversation so that we can move on? I'm not talking about sweeping stuff under the rug. Where do we need to address things that are just these resentful things? And you messed up my life. You hurt me. I, I will never forgive that. I will never forgive that. And by the way, you, you, and you all did wrong. And you did wrong. And you did me wrong. And we've been to keep those things. How long will we fester on those things? Where do we need to ask God for his grace? Because eventually that resentment and anger toward others turns into resentment and anger toward God. And what do you know? At the end, we find ourselves distant from God. I think the last thing that I see with this son is he had turned a relationship that was supposed to be father and son, that older brother, had turned it into a relationship like a transactional relationship. It was like, I do this, I should get this. So this is what he says. So many years, father, I have served you. I have slaved for you. I've been a slave. I should be rewarded. I should get something for that. The son of yours comes back and he, he gets, I should, I should have gotten, I, don't, I, I didn't even have any sort of party with my friends. It's all transactional. Somewhere along the line, I don't think it happened overnight, 
the older brother had changed it. See, the story starts with the younger son wanting stuff. The back end of the story is the older brother wants the stuff as well. He's just playing a longer game. He's going to get what's dad's and his life will be better. He's just wanting the same thing. He's going to go about it in a different way. And he finds himself distant and estranged. Somewhere along the line, his heart checked out. When we last see him, he's outside saying, no, I'm not going to go in. I'm not going in. What takes him away is he's looking at his moral performance. He's tried to be, you know what? Pretty good guy. Tried to pay the bills, help out the family. And that moral performance of his operated in spiritual counting terms on this, like credit, debit, ledger. Thought, I got lots of credits. I got no debits. I should get something. I should get something. I don't think it happened overnight. But could we be in danger of missing the grace of God? Could we be in danger of not seeing God showing grace time after time? You know, if God were to count iniquity, sin, rebellion, Psalm says no one could stand if he were to keep a record. Like we really don't want to, really don't want to kind of have that relationship with God, the transactional one. God, I did this. Give me this. God, I did this. Give me this. What we want to come to God with is in the relationship of grace. We say, I'm a sinner. Today, I think it's most appropriate for us to observe the Lord's Supper. You know, as we remember Christ's body broken for us, it's a reminder of another feast. So just imagine with me. So the Father has a banquet, right? The sons come home. So I'd say there are those of us that we were the younger brothers. We, we wandered and we recognized we can come back to the Father and we've been met by the Father's embrace. And the Father goes out to meet us. So we'll only have a small taste of that, of body broken for us, blood shed for us. But we will remember in that moment, we've been reconciled with the Father. We've been invited to his feast. We get a taste of that today. It's not just, old, not just younger brothers that are invited to that feast. He goes out to the older brother and says, come on in. Come on in. Can I extend an invitation to the older brothers in the crowd? Say, lay it down. Stop operating off of performance. And receive God's grace. But you won't do it holding on to your pride. You won't do it holding on to your resentment and anger. You won't do it holding on to a transactional mindset. You'll say, God, here I am, a sinner.